Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Well, let's begin um, in this series, Jesus' Final Week. We're going to take these two months uh, throughout the month of March, minus one week for spring break, and then the rest of April, and we're going to look at Jesus' final week, devoting these uh, six or seven study times together to those seven last days in the earthly ministry of Jesus before the cross and the resurrection. Uh, I know it's kind of weird because we're going to sort of straddle Easter as we come up to Holy Week, and then we'll, we'll be done with Holy Week, and we're still in the series, but I think this is good to give us this, some supplemental material to surround Easter as we approach it and then as we even come off of it uh, going into summer. It's a a good thing to remind us why this is so important. Uh, We call this Holy Week. You might have also heard it spoken of as Passion Week. And the word passion is one of those that we get gets thrown around Mel Gibson's movie The Passion of the Christ. Uh, We talk about the passion of the Lord Jesus and we think of passion as love compassion, but the word passion means suffering. Passio, the Latin word, means suffering. And so when we think of Holy Week, we think of Passion Week, this climactic week in Jesus' ministry, we are focusing, as was Jesus, on his suffering, and then on his death, and his burial, and then ultimately his resurrection. So that's what Holy Week is all about, Holy Week, Passion Week, about the suffering of the Lord Jesus. In some traditions, Palm Sunday, which we call it, is called Passion Sunday. And, and in some of these services where you might go or they observe a more liturgical church calendar, they might begin the service with Hosanna and the palm branches and things as we'll look at tonight. But over the course of that Passion Sunday service, they'll, they'll kind of move into the cross, which they get to, as we will, Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, as we remember the Last Supper, the Garden of Gethsemane, and then Jesus' death on Calvary. So we call it Passion Week or Holy Week, Passion Week, because we're focusing on the suffering of Jesus. And this week, Sunday to Sunday, Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday, was obviously the most important week, not just in the life of Jesus, but the most important week in the history of the world, the most important week in the entire universe. And the gospel writers treat it as such. We know that this was a significant event. These were significant events to the gospel writers, because of how much time and how much space the gospel writers devote to the events of Jesus' final week. Imagine you are writing a biography of someone, as the gospels sort of are, at least of Jesus' uh, adult ministry and adult life. Imagine you're writing a biography of someone, and 30, 40, 50% of your whole biography of this person's whole life is his last seven days on earth before they, they die. We wouldn't do that with a biography. People don't do that with their autobiographies. 
But we know that these events were significant to the gospel writers because of how much time they spend on it. Mark, the gospel writer Mark, spends 40% of his gospel on the events of Holy Week, from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday. Matthew's gospel, 30%. Luke's gospel, 24%. Mark was 40, Matthew 30, Luke 24 The Gospel of John spends over 40% of his gospel on the final week of Jesus' ministry from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday, approaching one half. In fact, if you look at the chapter numbers, which don't tell you really the length of the actual words, but the chapter numbers alone are half of John's gospel, over half of John's gospel. So this was central to the gospel writers. It was central to the early church. In fact, if you look with me... um, And when I say look with me, it's great if you'll open your Bibles or look on your phones, but I'm going to read it to you anyway. So you can just listen unless I really insist you turn there. So if I just say look with me, don't feel like I've turned there, but if I say turn there, let's look at this together, you do. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verses uh, 23 through 36. Let's just peruse some of this. This is Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. So the Holy Spirit has come and indwelt the believers and... um, they, they were speaking in tongues, and they heard them, and then, and then Peter, that, that whole episode has stopped, and now Peter is preaching the gospel to them. So let's hear what Peter thinks the gospel is. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So at the core of Peter's Pentecost sermon, okay, sort of that first sermon in the life of the New Testament church, Peter preaches the gospel. And it's important for us to understand what the message of the gospel is and what is the center of it for Peter. The life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So this was central to the gospel writers. It was central to the early church. Uh, Look over at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Actually, that's wrong. It's 1 Corinthians 15. Sorry. 1 Corinthians 15. Look how Paul introduces and talks about the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So this is a hefty introduction. Paul says, I want to remind you of the gospel. The gospel that saved you, the gospel that is saving you, as you hold fast to him. Verse 3, what is the message? What is the good news, the gospel? Paul, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So if you ask Paul, what is the gospel? You ask Peter, what is the gospel? 
You ask the gospel writers, what is the center of the gospel of Jesus Christ? The answer is going to be uniformly the same amongst all of them. It is the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only is it central to the gospel writers and Paul and Peter, it is central, obviously, to our lives as well. As Christians, those who claim to follow Christ, those who claim to have faith in Christ and saved by Jesus, what are we saved by? His life, his death, and his resurrection. So as we approach Holy Week, once again, sort of in that rhythm we go through from Advent to Holy Week, Advent to Holy Week, uh, approaching Easter and Good Friday and Maundy Thursday and those events that we're so familiar with, maybe this study will help us to remember better. And maybe th- this series will help us to mourn as we come to Good Friday. You know, I think a lot of churches are allergic to mourning and lamenting, not as those who have no hope, But I think in a lot of churches, you talk about mourning over your sins and weeping over your sins and and mourning over what Christ did for your sins, the price that he paid. Uh, That seems out of place in a lot of churches, but it should not be because we also know Sunday is coming, Easter Sunday. So maybe this will help us to remember, in some cases help us to mourn, and ultimately to help us celebrate. So let's look at the first event, if you're in the, the book Jesus' final week. This is chapter one, day one, the triumphal entry. I thought it was interesting that looking at the dates, and of course, um, there's some margin of error here about what year these things took place, so it might not match up, but it is interesting that this is a year. This is one of, I don't know how often it happens, where the dates correspond to what perhaps they actually would have been. So if you look at the triumphal entry, uh, dated maybe Sunday, April 2nd, A.D. 30. In just a few weeks, we'll celebrate Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry on April 2nd. So it's an interesting thing. This is a a significant event. Obviously, it kicks off Holy Week. It kicks off the Passion Week, and it's recorded in all four Gospels. If you know a little bit about the Gospels in the New Testament, you know the three of them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the Synoptic Gospels. They follow a relatively uh, chronological time frame telling us about Jesus' final days and the miracles. And they have their differences in terms of the order and the emphasis, but generally the same sort of scenarios. John is entirely different, and he doesn't go necessarily chronological. He's thematic and and theological, and he has points to make in the order of his gospel. And so some things may be in Matthew that are not in the others, or John, and there's a lot of things in John that aren't in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It is interesting, though, when the things do align, and there are the same events recorded in all four gospels. This is one of those events. The previous event that's recorded in all four gospels before this is the feeding of the 4,000, 5,000, the feeding of the multitude. And then, of course, after this, we'll follow through with the Last Supper, um, the crucifixion, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Those are in all four Gospels. But this event kicks off Holy Week, the triumphal entry, and it is in all four Gospels. It is a revelation of who Jesus is, a revelation of who Jesus was to his people, their Messiah, their King, the Son of David, And we look at it as a prophetic act. In other words, there's a meaning behind what Jesus is doing. He does not randomly choose to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey because his feet are tired. Or there's no more horses to be had. There's a a purpose in it. There's a prophecy. There's a prophetic act with ramifications. 
We call it a prophetic act because what Jesus is doing, really in both, both stories that we have today, is saying something about the future of Jerusalem. There's something there about the future of Jerusalem. Something about the triumphal entry and the cursing of the fig tree is prophetic in nature because it foretells something about the city of Jerusalem and really the Jewish people. And this is no ordinary week that Jesus comes into Jerusalem either. This is Passover week. The Jewish high holy days of Passover, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, uh, the Festival of Tabernacles, Pentecost, some of these um, many festivals they might not have pilgrimage to Jerusalem for, Passover was definitely one of those where many, 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 many Jews from all over the known world would have been coming up into Jerusalem for the celebration of Passover. Scholars say that the population of Jerusalem would have swelled from 25,000. So you think about Dumas, plus about 10,000 more, that would have been this, the normal population of Jerusalem any given day. During these holy days where the pilgrims came, you know, in Florida we had the snowbirds, I don't think anybody snowbirds in the panhandle of Texas, but in Florida we had snowbirds. And so we saw this influx. Jerusalem would swell from 25,000 people to 200,000 plus people. You imagine the houses and the inns and places just overrun with people sleeping and trying to stay through these holy days of the Jewish people. And the pilgrims would begin to arrive a week before. So right around the time Jesus is coming, the Sabbath day before, they wouldn't have traveled, but maybe that previous Friday as we see Jesus stays in Bethany, and then Sunday as he comes into Jerusalem, he would have been accompanied with many, many, perhaps thousands of pilgrims that were coming into Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Passover. And it's also significant to note that, that people did not ordinarily ride into the city on a donkey or a beast. They would have probably gotten off of the animal or out of their carriage to be checked by guards or to be you know, cleared by security before they come into the, the city. But Jesus chooses to ride into the city, as we know, on a donkey. And we're going to read the, the story here in a minute. But even before Jesus comes into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday, that triumphal entry Sunday morning, there was something that happened the night before, two nights before. Jesus had arrived in Bethany on Friday, and there was a dinner hosted for Jesus, we read, in the, the home of Simon the leper. And we're going to turn to John chapter 12 to read this, leading up into the triumphal entry. This is important for the theology of Palm Sunday, but also just, just for a devotional note about worship and the Lord Jesus. Here Jesus is in friendly company. Um, one of the few instances he will have in the presence of friendly company between then and his death, except for the Last Supper with his disciples, and even that is filled with tension because of the presence of Judas, uh, whom Jesus knows is going to betray him. So he's in this dinner, uh, John 12. He has not been back to Bethany since he raised Lazarus. And if you remember when he raised Lazarus, John chapter 11, he left Bethany and his disciples and he knew he should not return because it was the raising of Lazarus that really kicked up the religious leader's plan to kill Jesus into high gear. We can't let this guy continue on doing these things anymore. He's rousing up the people. He's causing a problem for us. He's going to hurt the taxes and hurt the income and hurt the nation. And so we've got to do something about him. So Jesus has not returned to Bethany since the raising of Lazarus. 
Nazareth, but now he does, and here he's in the home of Simon the leper. Look at um, John chapter 12. We're going to read verses 1 through 8 about this peculiar event that sort of leads us into the triumphal entry. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. This is a peculiar event uh, here in the life of Jesus. And some of the things that make it very peculiar, strange, first of all, was this expensive perfume. You know, we read these things and and we kind of know the story. We might know the numbers, but it doesn't really strike us as anything all that important. But in verse 5, it says this ointment made of pure nard, so spices and fragrances maybe from from even India, the book told us, was was worth 300 denarii. 300 denarii is about, if you think about it, a year's wages, the average worker in those times. So I know it doesn't exactly compute, but if you could think about taking an entire year's worth of wages and that expense being used on a perfume and then to pour out that perfume on the head and the feet of this person, that's a strange thing to do. It's, it's a very odd thing. It was, it was very common for them to anoint the head of the guest of honor. Jesus is the guest of honor, and surely that wouldn't have been uncommon for them to anoint his head and with, with some sort of fragrant oil or fragrant perfume. But to this extravagant amount and this expensive of a perfume, that was very strange and very peculiar indeed. It was also uncommon for the feet to be anointed. Maybe the head. As I said, that's very common, especially for the guest of honor, but not the feet. The feet were washed. The feet were washed by a slave or a servant in the house. Jesus will wash his disciples' feet. But for the feet to be washed, not just with water, but with this very costly perfume, that's also strange. Another strange thing is that Mary lets down her hair, not a very common thing to do. And I don't think it was in some sort of lascivious way, as we would say, let her hair down. But that women just didn't do that. Women didn't let their hair down in public in this time, and yet she lets her hair down. And furthermore, begins to wash Jesus' feet with this perfume, with her hair. And so what we have here is this extravagant show of humility before Jesus. An extravagant display of worship. And an expensive outpouring of love. But we see there are people on two different pages here. Mary is clearly on one page. She has no care spending this perfume on her Lord. She has no shame in letting down her hair and washing his feet and wiping it. But Judas leads the way in criticizing her. It says, uh, Judas there in verse 5, why was, this anoint- why was this ointment not sold and given to the poor? And the disciples sort of join in afterward. 
quote from the book on page 5 says, While Mary worshipped, Judas scorned and seethed over the loss of potential income to the coffer. While Mary worshipped, Judas seethes. And John tells us a little inside information about Judas, doesn't he? It wasn't just that money wasn't going into the coffer. It wasn't that this money couldn't be spent on the poor. It was that this was less money for Judas, who used to help himself, John said. It was less money for him to be able to help himself with. So Judas is concerned, but not with the poor, not with the coffers of the ministry, but Judas was concerned with himself. Matthew's gospel, if you want to write this, Matthew chapter 26, verse 14 through 15. I'm not going to read it, but just, just know it's there that Judas from this moment goes to seek out how much money he can make to betray Jesus. In other words, this was the straw that broke the camel's back for Judas. Of all the things he saw, and there's lots of you know, storylines that movies and TV shows and books have presented about why Judas comes to the point he did, and we ultimately don't know what drove him. I think one of the most common things, and maybe the most realistic, was that Judas expected one thing from the Messiah, as a lot of people did. Uh, a king, a prince, to ride in, to rid the Romans, to reestablish the throne of David and Israel's glory. You know, even the disciples are asking that in Acts 1. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And so maybe Judas had that in mind, and he kept seeing it squandered in his mind, his opinion on the poor and the, the prostitutes and the, the lepers and, and all these things that made him so incensed that at last he just had enough. This was it. This was a year's worth of wages that could have gone into the coffers of the ministry. You know, Judas thinking, I can have my you know, part off the top, skim off the top. And now it's been wasted, in his opinion. It's been wasted. And so he's so mad, he's so incensed that he goes and seeks out the re religious leaders to see how much they would offer for Jesus. In John chapter 12, verse 7, Jesus defends Mary. He says, leave her alone so that she may keep it, that isn't that she may hold it, but that she may use it in such a way for the day of my burial. Now, Jesus isn't dead yet. He's not being buried. It was, it was very customary for people to put expensive perfumes and oils and spices on the body of someone who had died. And they would wrap it in the shroud and then cake it with spices and, and all sorts of perfumes. And so that we understand the language, but why is Jesus talking about his burial, you know, five or six days before it even happens? No, Jesus was insinuating that there's something bigger and deeper here that Mary understands that these disciples still don't. Right? Mary understands, maybe not fully, but she knows somehow that the time is limited and that her time to pour out her worship and love on Jesus in this way is limited. And so Jesus says, leave her alone and let her do it. This is for my burial, which you don't even know is right around the corner. And so there's a turn here. A dinner party, anointing with oil of the guest of honor. There's festivity and joy and gladness and happiness. But Jesus has something darker on his mind. Jesus is thinking toward the cross. He's thinking towards his burial. He's thinking about his upcoming death. And what we see here revealed between Judas and Mary 
is the reality that they had two different lords. Judas's lord was money. It was his greed. Judas's lord was ultimately himself. And I guess ultimately Judas's lord was Satan. In fact, Jesus said, one of you is a devil. Jesus said that Satan had gone into Judas. But for Mary, there's no question of who her Lord is. Where her worship and her love and her devotion and her affection is, it is on the Lord Jesus who is revealed to be her Lord. In the book, uh, if you have the book, on page 164 in the very back, there are some questions that sort of go with this section. I just want us to think about these questions together. On page 164, you'll see week one discussion. Under point number one, you'll see A, B, and C. There's three questions there. Let's, let's look at those for a second. 1A. Has there been a time in your spiritual life when Christ's call to come follow me has been personally costly for you. Now Mary here is, is, is showing an actual physical monetary cost, and perhaps you've experienced that in some way. But it doesn't have to be that. It could be that of reputation, or, or potentially even a, a job, or, or some sort of relationship, whether it was a, a love relationship, or one with family or friends. Has there ever been a time when in your spiritual life, that call that Christ gives to each of us, come follow me. Has there been a time when that has been personally costly for you? Were there things or relationships that you had to give up? In what ways were your actions personally humbling for you? And the follow-up question, C, are there things that are currently keeping you from honoring and worship, worshiping Jesus as you should? Are you willing to give up these costly things? Now Mary gave up this perfume that cost a year's worth of wages. Uh, maybe Jesus is simply asking you to rearrange some priorities. Maybe Jesus is asking you to simply rearrange some some positions in your heart and your mind and your schedule, your timetable. Um, Jesus requires all of us. Take up your cross and follow me. And that comes with a cost. It comes with a death to self. So it's a worthwhile question to ask at the end of that peculiar event. Mary poured out everything. A whole lot she poured out when worshiped to Jesus. What have we been cause to pour out and worship to Jesus and what are we holding back from him well, as we move on through the story we come to the preparation of Jesus coming and as we approach the triumphal entry we have this really strange story of Jesus sending the disciples to fetch this donkey and there's some scholars that, that go back and forth on whether this was uh, foreknowledge on the part of Jesus. In other words, did, did Jesus miraculously know the position of this donkey and the age of this donkey and that the donkey had never been ridden? And, and did he know what the owners would say? 
so that he told his disciples, when they ask you what you're doing, you say the Lord has need of it. You know, was all of this sovereignly preordained by God and foreknown by Jesus? Well, in one sense, yes, because God did preordain all of this, and Jesus certainly knew what was going on around him at any given time. But it also could be that Jesus was actually planning this. There's nothing unethical or, or shady about that. Jesus wants to make a point. He's making a theological point by saying, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to do it on a donkey. And we're going to see why that is as we see the king coming. Turn to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. Let's just read the narrative of these events. Matthew 21, 1 through 11. The king comes. Matthew 21, verse 1. I love that sound. See, y'all brought your Bibles and you're turning. Do this on Sunday morning, right? Zane's preaching Sunday morning. You can do it anyway. Matthew 21, verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd, these pilgrims coming into Jerusalem for Passover, some of them recognizing who Jesus was, They spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So Jesus intentionally chooses this day, this time, this donkey to come into Jerusalem. And he's making a point. The point that the people, it seems, sort of understand. Hosanna to the son of David. This is our Messiah. This is our king. This is the anointed one of God. At least they hope he is. But he comes in an unexpected way. He does not come on a war horse doesn't come in a grand chariot prepared for battle, but he comes on a humble colt. Colt, not colt. Vane's talking about Mormons tonight. I had colt on the brain. He's coming on a humble colt full of a donkey, signifying that he means to bring peace. What did the people expect from this moment? If they've been waiting their entire lives for, for Messiah to come, the son of David to come, They expected maybe the war horse or the chariot, the grand army to come in and take care of Rome and reestablish Israel and reestablish the throne of David and all the above. But Jesus here comes on a donkey. But that is not unexpected in terms of the prophecies of the Old Testament. In fact, Matthew quotes one for us, Zechariah 9.9. And Matthew says in verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Zechariah 9.9. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. How is he coming? Humble and mounted on a donkey, 
on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So the scripture promised, Zechariah 9, 9 promised that the Messiah, when he comes to the city, when he comes, he will come on a donkey. Genesis 49, 10 through 11 corroborates this as well. We see this prophecy given to Judah, one of the sons of Jacob, that the scepter, the rulership of Israel, will not depart from Judah. And of course, we know the tribe of Judah to be the tribe of the kings. And so when his father is blessing him, the scepter shall not depart from you. And then he starts mentioning things about donkeys and riding on donkeys and donkeys tied to vines and vineyards. So this is not unexpected in terms of the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, about the king who was coming to reign on David's throne. They should have expected this. This should have been the way they thought he would come. Jesus understood that. Jesus knew that. And he planned this action with this point in mind. Jesus is saying this, I am the king coming in salvation and coming in judgment. I'm the king coming in salvation and coming in judgment. In 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 32 through 48, you don't have to turn there, we see Solomon riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And he's doing this to mirror what was done by his father, David. And so Jesus is intentionally latching on to this picture as well, saying, just as Solomon sat on the throne of his father, David, I am the king that was promised, 2 Samuel 7, to sit on the throne of my father, David. In fact, Matthew's gospel begins that way. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. All of this is making that point. Furthermore, when he comes into Jerusalem and the people start singing, there's something significant about the words they say. They don't just randomly, you know, nobody sat there and wrote this song on the spot. Uh, verse 9, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes, the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. They're pulling this from somewhere. They're quoting Psalm 118, verses 25 through 26. If you could imagine, you know, as we look in our hymn books and in the Baptist hymnal that's upstairs, you look in the hymn book and there's subjects at the top. You know, you might go through his birth or Christmas or whatever, his death, his resurrection, the Christian life, devotion, service, and there's, there's little themes that we, the, the hymns are all kind of stacked in those themes. The same is true of the Psalms. And Psalm 118 comes at the end, or towards the end, of a theme of psalms called the Hallel. Now, the Hallel doesn't mean much to us when I just say it like that, but when I say the word Hallelujah, you know what I'm saying, don't you? Praise the Lord. And these psalms are psalms of praise to the Lord, specifically as they enter Jerusalem for festivals just like Passover. So there's a reason they choose those words. There's a reason they choose that psalm and they sing it as the king comes into the city. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When they say the word Hosanna, you know this by now, the word Hosanna, it's a prayer of salvation. It literally means, Lord, hear our cry. Lord, hear our prayer. Lord, save us. 
we kind of use it as a word of praise, and so it could be. But it's literally a cry to God for salvation. So if you're the people then, you're in the crowd, and we're Christians here 2,000 years later reading this passage, think, think about these questions they would have been asking themselves. Who is this? In fact, that's what they ask at the end of the passage, isn't it? Who is this? What was he coming to do? How is he coming to save us? What's going to happen over the course of the next few days that this king, quote-unquote, this Messiah coming in on a donkey, humble, lowly, what's he going to do to save us? Now, they might have been excited by any number of messiahs. I mean, Jesus has done a lot of miracles. He's done a lot of signs. Most recently, he raised Lazarus from the dead. So they have reason to hope that maybe this guy is the one. Maybe they've heard of Jesus. They clearly think he's a prophet from Nazareth, verse 11. So maybe this is the one. And they sing this song to him, Hosanna, save us, Lord. But did they truly comprehend what they were saying? What does it mean for Jesus to save us? What was he coming to save them from? And a clear indication that they did not really understand what they were saying Look over at Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23, verse 37. This is Jesus speaking. And he says, Old Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, it's interesting. Weren't they just saying that in Matthew 21? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord to save us, to remove all the evil and the wicked, And to save us. But Jesus says, this is worth mourning over because you don't understand what I came to do. You don't understand who I am. You have rejected me and you have refused me. So you won't see me again until you say, for real, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Not to your salvation, but to your condemnation. Jesus' response to all this is one of weeping and mourning and lamentation. Because even as he comes into the city and even as some of these people praise him with shouts of praise, he's also met with hard-hearted unbelief. Write this, Luke 19, 39. Even as some say Hosanna, the religious leaders come to Jesus and say what? Tell these people to be quiet. Tell these people to stop saying these words to you. And you know Jesus' famous response, if they would be silent, even the rocks themselves would cry out. How often are we brought face to face with unbelief? Not just within ourselves. Think about family members, friends, lost loved ones. When you watch TV and you see people on TV and and we're about to come through Easter when all the documentaries start about how Jesus really didn't die and how he really didn't rise and who was Jesus really. And and we have all this unbelief all around us. 
We see it every day. We experience it every day. What is your reaction to that unbelief? Is it annoyance? Rolling of the eyes? Anger? Impatience? Maybe yelling at your TV or whatever you you consume your media through? What was Jesus' response to unbelief? Now, Jesus had moments of anger, righteous indignation. We're going to see one in just a moment. Jesus will come to judge the world in his wrath and his fury. We read that Sunday morning in Revelation 16. But coupled with that is also this pity, compassion. He weeps over those who do not believe in him. Quote from the book in page 12 says, Jesus did not go through life emotionless or in some robotic fashion. No, Jesus had a heart for people. If you look in the back of the book on page 165, a couple questions here about this. Question number three. 3a page 165 why do many believers fail to mourn for the lost is is there pride on our part is there anger again just being annoyed at unbelief why do you think we as believers fail to mourn for the lost How can we develop a greater concern for persons who do not know Jesus? And the follow-up question that might strike home a little bit, who do you need to talk to about Jesus? It's fine to get angry and annoyed at unbelief, but the question is, what are you doing about it? Have you shared the gospel with that lost family member or, or straying child or wandering grandchild? Have you shared the gospel with them and told them who Jesus is and what Jesus wants from them? Think of names and faces who come to mind that need to come to faith in Jesus. Maybe even write some down as I'm talking right now. Names, family members, friends, loved ones, co-workers that need to come to Jesus in faith and ask how Jesus can use you to do that. After we come through the triumphal entry and the, the unbelief of the Pharisees and Jesus mourning over the unbelief of the people, we have this fitting story of the cursing of the fig tree and the clearing of the temple one day after Palm Sunday on Monday, April 3rd, A.D. 30. If you look back at Matthew chapter 21, Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 18, just these few verses to verse 22. Matthew 21, verses 18 through 22. In the morning, he was returning to the city, and he became hungry. Why was he returning to the city? He's coming back in to the, to the festivities at the temple for Passover that whole week. There would have been lots of worship and festivities there. He became hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. He said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to this fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Again, we see the denouncing and the cursing of the fig tree 
as a prophetic act. Why is this a prophetic act? Number one, Jesus intends to denounce the faithlessness of Israel. To denounce the faithful, faithlessness of Israel. So to denounce faithlessness and also to announce the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. So this whole thing Jesus is doing right here, not because he's merely hungry. The other gospel writers tell us it wasn't even the season for figs. So Jesus knows that. Jesus curses the fig tree, not out of anger or impatience, but to make a point, to denounce Israel for her unbelief and to announce her coming destruction, not 40 years later. So what is the lesson behind all of this? What is the lesson that Jesus intends for us to understand? Well, first of all, fig trees were often employed by the prophets. In fact, too, you don't have to turn here, but Jeremiah 8, 13 and Hosea 9.10. Those were in your handouts there. And the fig tree in those prophecies and others is symbolic of the people of Israel. And either they're bearing good fruit for Yahweh or they're not bearing good fruit for Yahweh. And so Jeremiah likens unfaithful Israel to a fruitless fig tree. Hosea likens rebellious Israel to a fig tree that refuses to grow good fruit. And so the question we must ask ourselves is, why does Jesus do this? Where is Jesus headed? Jesus is headed to the city, to Jerusalem. He's going to the temple. And en route to the city of Jerusalem, en route to the temple, he stops to curse this fig tree laden with the symbolism of fruitless Israel. He's going to the temple. He's going to the city. We've already looked at this, really. What is Jesus going to find as he comes to the city and as he comes to the temple? He's going to find fruitlessness. He's going to find faithlessness, which in Matthew 23, 37, causes him to weep and to lament and to mourn over the judgment that is going to come upon them. Why? Because Jesus sees and understands that this whole thing, the beauty and the grandeur and the glory of the temple, the ritual sacrifices, the priesthood, the religious leaders, it's all become one big facade. The temple that Jesus knew would have been the second temple that would have begun construction in 538 B.C. You think about that, 500 plus years before Jesus was even on the scene, in human form. That temple has been built after the destruction of the temple by Babylon. They come back, they rebuild it under Zerubbabel. It's still being added to and built on by Jesus' time by King Herod. It's still grand, it's still glorious, not as glorious as Solomon's temple, but it's still beautiful. But Jesus looks at it and he sees what he would have seen in the religious leaders. Whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. Look at Mark chapter 11. Mark 11. Read about what happens as Jesus comes to the temple. Mark 11, verse 15. 
They came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple. This is that same journey as he cursed the fig tree. Now he comes to the temple. And he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying to them, Is is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. What does Jesus find as he comes to the temple, as he comes to the city? Does he find prayer? Does he find worship? No, he finds commercialization. He finds robbery, swindling. He finds fruitlessness. And Jesus uses the very words of the prophets again to remind us of the danger that Israel is in. In Isaiah 56 verse 7, he reminds us that the temple is supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations, not just Israel. There was a court of the Gentiles also. It was supposed to be for all the nations of the world to come and to pray and to worship. But Jesus, then quoting Jeremiah 7.11, Jeremiah 7.11, he says, You have taken what should be a house of prayer, and you have made it a den of thieves. Not necessarily because things were being sold there. That happened all the time. People did sell sacrificial animals and other things in the temple. That was okay. That was sanctioned. What Jesus became incensed at was that that had taken over the spirit of the temple, where instead of worship and reverence and awe, things that were secular, money and changing money and selling and buying that should be done outside the temple are now being brought into the courts and it has taken over the spirit of the temple. And Jesus says, you know, this is... This is the kind of fruitlessness that that doesn't just represent the temple at this moment, but it represents all of Israel at this moment. Hence why he then mourns and laments over Israel. So Jesus finds that this house of prayer has become a den of thieves. And then I want you to notice where where Mark goes with his gospel. Look at Mark 11, verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away. To its roots. The same fig tree. The disciples marveled that this has happened, that it withered as Jesus said it, and as they come back, see it's withered all the way down to the roots. The fig tree was cursed. It withered into nothing as a sign of destruction. Destruction for what? The destruction of Jerusalem. The destruction of the temple. For the fruitlessness and faithlessness of the people. And so it would be easy for us to look at that and to, you know, sort of shake our heads at the unbelief of the people. And how could they not know? How could they not understand? Didn't they know what was coming? Didn't they know what was happening? I think the question would lie on us tonight what about us? What about you? Maybe like the temple. Like the Pharisees and the religious leaders, our outside looks nice. We come to church looking the part, playing the part, talking the part, acting the part. 
Maybe we go through life acting the part and looking the part, wearing the right mask, but it's all a big facade. We are those whitewashed tombs that Jesus condemned the Pharisees for being. Maybe that is who we are in our hypocrisy or unrepentant sin or disobedience. Again, on page 165 of the book, you have some follow-up questions here. Question 4a, what spiritual fruit is Jesus looking for in our lives? And what cultivation and pruning needs to take place in your life to produce that fruit? Jesus condemned Israel for their fruitlessness and their faithlessness. And in the sign of this withered fig tree and the clearing of the temple, Jesus showed what was going to happen to Jerusalem and to the temple not 40 years later when Jerusalem would be destroyed by fire and the temple itself would be destroyed, not one brick left upon the other. For faithlessness for failing to bear fruit for their master. And we should stop and ask ourselves the same question. What fruit is Jesus looking for? What fruit is he looking for in our lives? And what needs to be cultivated or pruned in our lives to bear that fruit for our master? But there are some good news here as well as we close tonight. You don't have to turn here, but in the book of 1 Peter 1 Peter 1, verses 13 through 16, and 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17. The temple of Jerusalem is long gone. 70 AD, it was destroyed, never to return again, because there's no use for it anymore. The sacrifice of Jesus was once for all on the cross. There's no need for those sacrifices anymore. So what is the temple today? When Paul talks about the temple in 1 Corinthians 13 or 3, and when Peter talks about the temple in 1 Peter chapter 1, what temple are they talking about? Well, 1 Peter is talking about the church. And he says, you are like living stones being built together as a temple for the Spirit of God. Jesus came into Jerusalem on that day, cursed the fig tree as a sign of the destruction that was coming upon that temple then because of the fruitlessness and the faithlessness of his people then. So if his people now, the church, if we are the temple of God and his spirit is dwelling in us as living stones in his house that he's building, what would his assessment of his temple be now? What would his assessment be of us as living stones in this temple? Romans 12, 1 through 2. I'm going to close by reading this tonight. Ask a follow-up question. What kind of sacrifices do we offer? If we're the temple and we are the priesthood, what kind of sacrifices do we offer? Paul says in Romans 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. We're God's people, bought by God's mercy, and Paul says, in light of that mercy, 
live your lives as living sacrifices to God. And the question is, what does he deserve from us? What is he worthy of from us? Not just an expensive perfume poured out in a room, as glorious as that was. Not just shouts of Hosanna and palm branches waving in the air, as glorious as that was. Not the beauty and grandeur of the temple and the sacrifices. What does he deserve from us? He deserves absolutely all of us. Present your bodies as living sacrifices. Not empty, vain, false worship. But Paul says your true spiritual worship. And how does it happen? As our minds and our hearts are renewed by the Spirit of God. So as we come into Holy Week in a couple, couple weeks, a couple, couple weeks, maybe a month from now, a little more than a month, let that be the prayer of our hearts as we approach that week and we think about these events, not just to, to go through them and recite the things and we know the stories and we know the pictures, but to really think, take a step back and ask if, if this picture was saying something to me, if this story is saying something to me, what is God asking of me in these events? Jesus has done the work of our salvation We're not talking about adding something to our salvation or or doing something to save ourselves more. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about now that we belong to him as his people. What does he demand of us? And Paul says he demands absolutely everything from us. So what are you withholding? What can you give up? What can you lay down? What can you pour out for the master this Easter season? Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. We ask that as we leave tonight, you will take the words that we've read, the words that we've studied, you would plant them deep in our hearts. Make us more and more like you every day by your power, by your spirit, by your grace and your mercy, that we might be renewed in our minds and renewed in our hearts. We may live our lives as living sacrifices to you for what you've done for us. We ask all this in your name and praise you. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.